Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. So I've got to ask myself a question, and I'm going to raise it for all of us. Why do people reject the gospel? So I want to clarify all that. We share the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. What God has done in time and space in human history to fix the problem that we caused and we couldn't fix for ourselves. This is our mission, right? This is what Jesus has commanded us to do. This is what we talk about in the Great Commission, when we read that, when we proclaim it, when we study it, when we encourage one another, this is, what, this is what we're about when we have missions, emphasis Sundays, and we reflect on what God is doing around the world. This is, this is what we're talking about when we talk about going out from this room, this place right here, to our community, to those that we know, those who we don't yet know. Everybody who we know that is separated from God, we have a mission to proclaim the gospel that because of our sin, we were separated from God. And Jesus came because God loved us and didn't want us to suffer the just consequences of our actions. So Jesus came to die on the cross to atone, to pay for the sin that we had committed. And then by putting our faith and trust in him, we receive eternal life, reconciliation with God, redemption, hope, life, all of these things because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel, and this is what we proclaim And yet, when we proclaim the gospel, when we share the gospel with other people, more often than not, let's be honest, people say, thanks, but no thanks, or something along those lines, sometimes nicer and sometimes not as nice. But it makes us wonder, because if we are Christians, if we are those who have been transformed by the gospel, by what Jesus has done, then we know that it is truly the greatest gift that's ever been given to anybody. It is the most life-changing, profound, amazing thing, unfathomable if we really consider what God was willing to do for us, those rebellious sinners here on the earth. And when we proclaim the gospel, we can't imagine that anybody would want to say no to it. So I'm going to ask you again, because we know the reality. But there's many times when we share the gospel and people say no. Why? Why do people reject the gospel? I think it's important for us to think about it. I think sometimes we are a little too simplistic in why we think people reject the gospel. And I wanted to share some of the reasons, perhaps, that people do this. So first of all, people have current beliefs, right? It doesn't matter whether they're part of another religion. Perhaps they're Perhaps they're a Muslim, perhaps they're a Hindu, perhaps they're a Buddhist, perhaps they're part of a religion that you've never heard of before. But a lot of times people are already subscribed to something else. And so when you say that this is true, you're saying that what they currently believe is false. And there's a disconnect. There's something that they have to be willing to work through in order to hear and respond to the gospel because they believe the world worked differently than the way in which we are explaining it. This is true even if they're not part of another religion, but perhaps their worldview is distinctly different. For instance, as Christians, we understand that there is a God, the God, who is the creator of all things, and all things 
uh, are, are accountable to him. He has created everything and every person to be in relationship with him, and he's bringing all of history to his ends and his purposes. He's sovereign overall. This is what the scriptures uh, uh, proclaim. This is what we believe as Christians. But if you are an atheist, or you do not believe that God exists, that everything that happens in the world can be explained through naturalistic means, through the laws of nature, through chance, then when somebody proclaims the gospel, it's a hard pill for them to swallow because you can't say Jesus is the son of God and they just take it at face value if they don't even believe that God exists. So one of the reasons why people perhaps reject the gospel, at least at first hearing, is that they're subscribed to a different set of beliefs. There's also the desire for autonomy and freedom to sin. That may sound boldly. I'm sure they wouldn't put it in quite those terms. Um, but people like their world the way it already is without allowing the idea of God in because it seems too restrictive. I think that sometimes we automatically throw everybody under that category, but that isn't true. But that is certainly uh, one of the reasons that people are not entertaining the concept of God and the gospel. In fact, we read this in John 3, 20 and 21. Jesus says, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly what they have done has been done in the sight of the Lord. So in other words, making a commitment to the truth of the gospel, making a commitment to Christ, is recognizing that God does in fact see what we do, both the good and the bad, uh, that God does hold us accountable to our actions, and that we need to confess our sin, repent of it, be sanctified, that there's accountability for the way we live. And for those who want to continue to persist in things that they know are wrong, yes, this is one of the reasons people tend to be a little bit... Um, that some people don't accept the gospel. There are others, though, who have experienced hurt by Christians or by the church or know somebody personally who has been deeply hurt by Christians, by the church they grew up in, uh, by somebody who has claimed to be a Christian. And this is more than you would imagine. I know several people, I've lost count of the people who I know who have either walked away from faith or have never come to faith because of the way they were treated or somebody close to them was treated by Christians. And many people, and perhaps this is more and more the case today, many people have been culturally conditioned to reject Christianity. There's a narrative being spun in our world, in our society right now, about what it is to be a Christian and why that is a horrible, horrible thing. And most of the things that people tend to think about when they think about what is a Christian um, they don't necessarily correspond to this, but instead they're caricatures of perhaps the worst examples of Christians that exist in our society, and yet that is used as an umbrella to throw us all under uh, in our world. And so there's many people who we proclaim the gospel to, and they reject it, and we just assume, what's wrong with you? You're just willfully disobedient to God. But really, in fact, they have been culturally conditioned to see Christians in a particular way, and there's misrepresentations of Christianity that need to be addressed before they'd be open to it. That's just some, that's the very short list. What about when we look back 2,000 years ago? Did Paul and his missionary journeys, did the early church 
face people rejecting the gospel? We've been reading about it. We're going to continue to read about it. In fact, we see this a lot. So what about in the first century? What about in the time period of Acts? Why did people reject the gospel in Paul's day? Again, current beliefs certainly played a role in it. We're going to see that a little bit today. And I, you know, Luke doesn't really draw out why there was opposition to the gospel. But it's important for us to think about this. Why? where so many of the Jews and the Gentiles we're going to read about resistant to the gospel. Why did they reject it when they heard it proclaimed? And if you think that, man, if Kevin proclaimed the gospel to me, I probably wouldn't even believe. But if Paul proclaimed the gospel, and yet this is Paul empowered by the Holy Spirit on his missionary journey with Barnabas even, a good wingman, and yet there's people that are not believing. Why? Again, current beliefs is a big role in this. Let's talk about the Jews. Why did first century Jews, many of them, not all of them, but many of them, hear the gospel and reject it? Well, for starters, the idea of a crucified Messiah was a hard pill to swallow. You know, there's so many Old Testament passages that refer to the Messiah coming and reigning from David's throne, reigning, having a reign of peace, all nations coming and bowing down before God and the King of Israel and the nation of Israel. And where's all of that? Instead, we have a Messiah who died. In fact, in Deuteronomy, it says that anybody hung on a pole is cursed by God. And yet, here's this Jesus hung on a pole isn't he then cursed by God? How can he be the Messiah? There was also the matter of the religious leaders. Jewish people at large respected their Jewish religious leaders. And guess what? The religious leaders did not welcome Jesus with open arms when he came. Instead, they rejected him. They were the, they were the ones who turned him over to Pilate to be executed. Also, different Jewish views about the Messiah and the kingdom of God existed during this time period. Not everybody was looking for exactly the same thing. Because while the scriptures didn't change, the, the world in which they lived, the events in which the nation of Israel had to endure, the influences of other people groups that were infringing, uh, encroaching upon Israel, formed worldviews around the scriptures. And so there were many interpretations of what the Messiah would be. And Jesus didn't necessarily fit the bill for all of them. And Jesus, again, didn't do what they thought the Messiah would come to do. Because while his death and his resurrection and his atonement for sin are clear in the Old Testament, so are so many other elements that he didn't do during his first coming. And so these were questions that remained unanswered for many of the Jewish people. And so their current beliefs stood as obstacles against many of them coming to faith in Jesus, even as the gospel was being proclaimed. And so they rejected, and they even opposed. And we'll talk about that. But what about the Gentiles? What about those non-Jewish people? Why wouldn't they accept the gospel? I mean, it sounds like good news, right? We had all of these gods before, now there's just one, right? We had to do all of these things to keep the gods happy, but now look, Jesus did everything. Hey, all the, all the hard work is done, I'm saved. Isn't this great news? Why wouldn't they accept this? Well, let's take a look. Current beliefs, again, play an important role in why people, even Gentiles, 2,000 years ago, rejected the gospel. The biblical worldview is 
diametrically opposed to the worldview of the majority of the people in the ancient world, including those that Paul and his companions went to minister to with the gospel. We, the Bible teaches uh, theism. There is one God. He is the God, not just of a people group, but of the whole world. He created all things, sustains all things. But the rest of the world, the world that Paul was engaging with, were pantheists. They believed that God and the world and people were all intertwined. And so you could fashion an idol and you could worship and do things to the idol that affects the will of the gods and the gods then are obligated almost to, 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 to do good things for you, to make your crops grow, to make sure you're protected from your enemies, to make sure that you have children and, and that everything goes well with your people. And so diametrically opposed. This is an otherworldly concept when the gospel is being proclaimed. The other thing is, in this ancient world, there were certain gods that were the gods of this region, of this city, of this country. And so they did everything to honor these gods, to make them happy, so that they would be protected from their enemies, so that they would be blessed. And what happens when this whole community worships these regional gods and yet a percentage of this community stops worshiping these gods, instead goes and worships this other god and makes our god jealous. Well, then our regional god might not help us. Our regional god might dry up the land. Where's the produce? Where's the water? Where's the fertility? And all of a sudden we suffer because of this growing group of people who are, who, are, who are angering our God. And so all of these current beliefs stand as obstacles to them hearing and responding to the gospel. We don't live life in a vacuum. We don't hear these assertions, these truth claims, and make decisions in a vacuum. All of these things happen within a context, and this is what we see as we read through stories, these narratives, these historical events, like in the book of Acts, as Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming the gospel, and there's opposition. Why? So my hope today, as we look at this passage, is to understand a couple things. That it's not as simplistic as we make it out to be. That the gospel is being proclaimed, and there are reasons that people are rejecting it. And I'm hoping that that will also give us some insight as we engage with the gospel in our world too. Because as we engage in, the in sharing the gospel, we're not doing so in a vacuum either, but with people who have reasons for their disbelief that need to be overcome so that they can understand and respond to the gospel and come to faith in Christ. So as we'll see in our text today, persecution is what we're gonna be seeing a lot of in our text. Uh, persecution continues to break out against Paul and Barnabas as we've seen in passages before and as we will see again in passages after as they proclaim the gospel. And we need to ask the question, why does persecution break out against them? And these reasons that we just discussed certainly play a role. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 14. And we're going to be starting right at the very beginning in verse 1. Acts 14. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into this Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. 
But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derb and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. So first, there's a couple notable observations from our passage I don't want to skip over here. The first is of this, that Paul and Barnabas went to the synagogue and it says, as usual. And so if you were with us last week or if you watched it online, we saw that there was a trajectory for the gospel. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And in our culture, in our day, and perhaps right here in Belgrade, where we don't have a whole lot of Jewish people, this is something that is completely lost on us or foreign to us. But we see that this was an element not only of Jesus's ministry, but also Paul's ministry and all the apostles. In fact, it's interesting and striking that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. This was his unique calling. And yet, as we have seen and will see, every city he goes to, he first goes to the Jews. He first goes to the synagogue to proclaim the gospel, and then he goes out beyond that to the Gentiles. And so we do see this continual uh, focus on first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. But something interesting about the synagogue is that while, yes, that's where the Jewish people met, that's where they assembled, where they studied the Torah, while they uh, focused on these things, and he would have an outlet, a platform, to be able to speak the gospel and to reason from the scriptures, it's also a place for him to engage at least with some Gentiles, some non-Jewish people. Because you have both God-fearing Gentiles and those Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. And so within many of the synagogues throughout the ancient world, you have those who have come to faith in the God of Israel. And so they have, still have to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they would have at least come and been a part of there. So as Paul and Barnabas are ministering, preaching the gospel in the synagogue, they're reaching the Jewish community, but they're also reaching beyond to some of the Gentiles in the community as well. And so as we consider the implications of this, we need to ask such questions in our context. How can I effectively reach people with the gospel? Where do I need to go to create new opportunities to create the gospel, to proclaim the gospel? Where and with whom can I have a platform to make the gospel known to others? Here's the thing. I have known many Christians, and I have been guilty of this in my life as well at different times, of just sitting back and waiting for God to open a door for me to proclaim the gospel. You know, I've spoken to many people who say, you know, as soon as God puts it on my heart, or if an opportunity presents itself. But you know, if you sit back waiting for opportunities, you're never going to find those opportunities, even though they are always right in front of you. But you know what? When we're intentional about creating opportunities to proclaim the gospel, then we realize all those opportunities that existed in our midst every day that we took for granted. And so we need to have a posture of not sitting back available if God chooses and send somebody right into my path, 
but taking the Great Commission seriously and creating opportunities, going where we need to go, talking with who we need to talk with in order to spread the gospel. Where are those places? Where are those places in Belglade? Who are those people in Belglade? Where can I have a voice? Where can I build a new relationship? Where will I be able to share? And we need to make, we need to avail ourselves of those opportunities. Here's another observation from our passage today. The text says they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Wow. They spoke so effectively. Man, it's a good thing that the Holy Spirit sent Paul. You know, because he's such a great speaker. If I had done it, nobody would have come to Jesus. But because Paul went, there you go. Paul, he had that special gift. He was a speaker. That's not what this passage is saying. They spoke, it doesn't say they spoke so eloquently. It says they spoke so effectively as if their words had effect. There was a return on their investment of the words. And believe me, that had nothing to do with Paul. It had nothing to do with Barnabas. It had everything to do with what God was doing in and through them. And the same would be true for anybody who has been commissioned by God. And we've all been commissioned to take the gospel. You know, there's a common fear, a common misconception, which is this. I'm not a great speaker. I don't articulate the gospel well. In fact, if I were to proclaim the gospel to that person, they'd be farther away from Jesus than before I started talking. Well, guess what? That is absolutely 100% incorrect and an unwarranted fear, even though it's a fear that tends to keep many of us away from presenting the gospel. This is not what the passage is trying to say, that Paul and Barnabas were so great at speaking that, thank God, they were there, they took care of the issue. No. How can we know that? How can we know that the passage is not saying it's because of the great work of Paul and Barnabas? Well, first of all, we've seen throughout Paul's mission so far, and we see it right here in our passage, that Paul and Barnabas were empowered by God for the task that he called them to. We see in verse 3, So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. So think of it this way. They spoke boldly, right? They were obedient, they were willing, they were intentional. They spoke boldly. But God was the one that empowered them for it. God was the one that made their speech effective. God is the one that brought the fruit. Paul was a very gifted communicator. We know that just by reading his epistles. You know, we sit there wrestling through 1 Corinthians even. We did this for a year in Alliance Men, and we're just digging the depths of this. And holy cow, that man's brilliant. He's a great communicator. But that's not why he was effective. It was the power of God that made his speech effective for the kingdom, that pierced the hearts and minds of his hearers so that they would respond to the gospel. So here's the question. How can we be effective in our sharing of the gospel with others? Well, here's some suggestions for starters. For starters, we have to do it. You know, I'm going to tell you something. This is a profound truth. Ready? You can take, if, you take, if you're a note taker, write this down. You Ready? You're going to memorize this. If I don't share the gospel, I will never be effective at sharing the gospel. Raise your hand if that's true. If I never share the gospel, I will never be effective at sharing the gospel. All right, so the first thing we have to do is do it. We need to be willing to do it. And so maybe the first thing we need to do is baby steps. 
Maybe the first thing we do need to do is, is, is give a copy of God's word or say, hey, can I pray for you? Or, or one of these other ways of building a relationship and in. Um, so that's a first step. Please don't stop there. Maybe we need to start building some new relationships that we intentionally claim as gospel-centered relationships. There's a person, I see them at Winn-Dixie all the time, I've never bothered to talk to them. I'm going to go and introduce myself. I'm going to establish a relationship with this person. My hope is that as I build this relationship, I will have an opportunity to share my faith with them. Maybe we need to do that. Maybe we need to start inviting people to church. But here's the thing. None of those things in and of themselves is the end that we're called to, to articulate, to proclaim the gospel. That's the end result. And we do need to. That's a sign of maturity. That's our goal. That's what we're commanded to do. And so we need to be able to use those things as steps toward actually proclaiming, articulating the gospel and giving them an opportunity to respond. You know, listen, God loves you. And even though you're separated from him because of your sin, he loved you enough not to leave you there. He sent his own son to die on a cross to pay the price for everything that stands in the way between you and him so that you can be forgiven and redeemed and reconciled to him, your creator who loves you. Would you be willing to put your faith and trust in him and receive that gift of salvation he offers because of the death and resurrection of Jesus? You know what? We need to be able to do that. That's the goal. The most prominent observation from our passage is this. They endured some persecution. This is not new. We've been seeing persecution since early on in the book of Acts. We're going to continue to see it. We're going to see more people lose their lives. It's not the part of the Bible we like to focus on, especially as Christians. But there is persecution. So first, the good news. Why is there persecution? Because many Jews and Gentiles believe because the gospel was actually making a difference. It was changing things. People were responding. We see that in the text. But those who didn't stood against the apostles. And this is one of the few moments we see both Jews and Gentiles working together of one accord in order to persecute the apostles and stop the spread of the ministry. And so they are both dead set against the apostles and the spread of the gospel. We see in verse 2, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Disbelieving Jews got the the disbelieving Gentiles riled up. They worked together and just got angry over what was taking place as Paul and Barnabas were doing their ministry. We see in verse 5, but there was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. Yes, stoning means death. So local leadership and religious leadership was involved in inciting people toward hatred of the apostles. In fact, verse 4 said that the entire city was divided. Everybody had to choose a side. There were those who heard the gospel and responded to it. They were new Christians. There were those who heard the gospel and were intrigued and were working through it. But then there were those who were on the other side who were being gathered together by those who were dead set against them. And now there's this faction and there's this division. And that's not a good thing. This was not a contained issue. We live in a world where religion and the rest of the world is all compartmentalized. That's not this. 
Everything in this world was intertwined. Religion was a part of everything. This was not a contained issue, compartmentalized to one aspect of life. This was, an all, this was all encompassing during their time in the city. And the opponents of Paul and Barnabas were determined to kill them, to literally stone them, to pelt them with rocks until dead. That's what they, that is how dead set against them they were. So why? Again, why? Why, were, why did people reject the gospel, and why were they so angry against it at who proclaimed it? So let's take a look at some opposition in this passage. First of all, many of the Jewish people opposed them. Now, many Jewish people also came to faith in Christ, but those who didn't, there were a contingent of Jewish people who opposed Paul and Barnabas and the spread of the gospel. Why? Again, they believed Paul and Barnabas were preaching a heresy. Literally a false teaching like, like Paul used to believe about the Christians. So Josh brought up a good point in Sunday school class. I'm going to keep plugging Sunday school class because I'm hoping more people are going to come. We do some good Bible study in Sunday school class. You're all invited. No charge, I promise. But one of the things that we see is this, this fear, right? Because the Jewish people, if you reflect back on their history... They were lured away from the one true God and from the way he called them to live to false gods and idols and the ways of, the, of their neighbors. And because of that, God brought punishment upon them, even exile from the land and hardships and other nations coming and oppressing them. And guess what? You get a little taste of that. You don't want it anymore. And so here's this teaching that they don't recognize as orthodox, that they don't recognize as what their religious leaders are telling. It's something different. And if it's not true, then it's a danger. And here, more and more Jewish people are coming to believe. And those who think that this is absolutely wrong are scared that all these Jewish people turning this false teaching is going to bring the anger of God back down upon Israel again. And they didn't want to have that. And so... It's natural that they wouldn't just, ah, that's not for me, thanks, but would be angry with the spread of the gospel among the Jewish people in their midst. Remember, their religious leaders rejected Jesus. They had a hard time believing in a crucified Messiah. Jesus didn't do everything that they expected the Messiah to do. And if Jesus was not the Messiah, and if Christianity was false, then they were a direct threat against Israel because they'd be promoting a false teaching that could anger the God of Israel. We also see that many Gentiles opposed them. Again, why? Again, Christian belief was a threat against their worldview because everything in pantheism, right, their worldview was intertwined. And so their disbelief could anger their local gods and bring bad things upon them. And it was a threat to their local economy. It was a threat to their, the fertility of their crops, their safety of their people. This was not a small matter. Now you may read passages like this, and uh, it may make you think of Christianity in our current cultural climate. Or what you're, or, you know, we're, we're in times that are increasingly hostile toward Christianity times when we can't help but turn on the TV and see some kind of rhetoric that paints Christians a particular way, and it's not a happy way. So why do people in our society seem to oppose Christianity so strongly? Here are some reasons, and I, I could go on this all day, but I promise I won't. I'll get you to lunch before three o'clock. Just kidding. Here are some reasons. 
Uh, one is that Christianity makes absolute moral claims that conflict with the current cultural moral standards. I'll say that again. Christianity makes moral claims, absolute moral claims, as in they apply to all people that are opposed to the moral, you know, to the, to the moral temperature of our country. There's a disconnect between what we believe is moral and what they believe is moral, and there's conflict as a result. For instance, here's just some. Sex should be within the relationship of marriage, and marriage should be only between one man and one woman. Why do we believe that? Well, that's what the Bible says. And these are absolute moral claims, and they stand in stark contrast with what is morally acceptable in our current society. So when Christians advocate such things, there is a conflict between Christianity and culture. So why the conflict? Well, because this is our source of authority where we receive this information and we submit to it under the lordship of God. But if you don't believe that this is the word of God, if this doesn't have authority, why should you expect that they are going to agree with you on that moral standard? And so there's conflict as two worldviews are opposed to each other. What else in our society uh, do, causes people to oppose Christianity? Well, the biblical worldview causes Christians to interpret the world differently than non-Christians. For instance, Christians are anti-abortion because the Bible makes it clear that life begins at conception and each human life is created in the image of God. That's very simplistic when I say abortion, and I recognize that there are medical issues and other things that you know, people are talking about in our culture today. But ending a, an actual viable life in somebody uh, is what I'm talking about by abortion. Therefore, when Christians oppose abortion, Christians are taking a stand for the unborn child's right to life. Okay, but here's the, here's the other thing. Many in society don't understand or don't believe that life begins at conception. Okay, and so they advocate for the rights of the mother. Are they wrong for advocating for the rights of the mother? No. Now, if the unborn child were not actually a child, not a person, then they would actually be in the right for advocating for the rights of the mother. Why do we believe that a child, a life, begins at conception, is created in the image of God, and therefore has a right to life? Because we read it in here. We trust God's revealed word. We submit to its authority. But what if you don't believe God exists? Or what if you're part of another religion, so the Bible is not your, your scripture, and it doesn't speak to this? Well, is there a problem with recognizing the rights of a mother? No. But when you recognize what the Bible has to say, yes, we believe the mother has rights, but those are lower than the rights of protecting a human life. That has to take priority. Why is there a disconnect? It comes down to worldview. It comes down to where is your source of truth. They don't recognize that truth, and there's an issue there. But even from this short list, we can understand why Paul and Barnabas might have faced such persecution in their society. Because there's disconnects. There are problems that exist that need to be addressed in order to overcome these issues that are prohibiting people from hearing and responding to the gospel. Why do we have so many people reject the gospel and be opposed to Christianity in our day? The same thing. We have competing worldviews and people have intellectual obstacles that we can't just dismiss. 
They need to be addressed for them to be able to hear and respond to the gospel. Here's the fact. Christianity is countercultural. It has been, should be, it, it always is. We're talking about two kingdoms that are apart from one another, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, right? We're talking about a world of human autonomy versus a world surrendered to the king, to, to the, king, to the Lord, all right? Christianity is countercultural. It has its foundation in the revealed word of God. It is the reality of the kingdom of God breaking through into the kingdom of this world, and there's going to be conflict. So what did Paul and Barnabas do? What did they do to change the reality that they faced, to impact the society and culture that they ministered in? What did Paul and Barnabas do? They continued to preach the gospel. They continued to preach the gospel. They didn't appeal to their freedom of speech, not that they were afforded that right in that society. Paul didn't argue, hey, I'm a trained Jewish man. I have a right to speak in this synagogue just like anybody else. They didn't try to rally the people behind ousting the current local leaders to get ones that are more amenable to the gospel put in their place. They didn't picket, boycott, file a complaint, or any other such thing. And I want to pause for a second, because I'm not saying that any of those things are wrong, okay? It's just that that wasn't the mission. That's not what they were there to do. That wasn't going to solve any enduring issues. That is not of ultimate importance, and I would argue it would not even be the best short-term solution to their problems. Historically, how do we see the world change in the decades and the centuries following Paul and Barnabas? How did we see true change, enduring change, by the gospel spreading and more and more people coming to faith in Jesus and being transformed by the Holy Spirit and living for God? In fact, a lot of the things that we just, you know, we take for granted now that are good in our culture, even hospitals and all kinds of things. Do you know that Christians forge the way for many of these things as a, at a response of lives changed by the gospel? I mean, we, there's so many different ways in which Christianity has bettered the world. Now, there's a whole lot of bad that's been done in the name of Christ in history, and I'm not saying that's not the case as well. But how was the world changed positively? by people coming to faith in Jesus. And so while I'm not saying any of those other things that we engage in society in are bad, you know, I'm saying that if we do all of that, but we're not sharing the gospel, I don't know what kind of hope we ever hope to have here. And so we need to prioritize the gospel. So we have opposition in our day. How do we face it? First, we lay down our hate that we wrongfully harbor against those who are opposed to us. I'm sorry. I, I watch CNN for just five seconds, and I start to just seethe with some anger. And I know that we are all, I don't care what side of the aisle you are on. I don't care what you believe about anything. I don't care if you're a Christian or an atheist. I don't care, if you, I don't care who you are. Man, has the news just made us all raw over the last two and a half years? And you know what the problem is? Humanity in our country is volatile. Everybody's against everybody. We have no patience for anybody anymore. Friends, we need to pray that we can forgive. We need to pray for healing from our rawness toward each other. 
And we need to not harbor hate against anybody. I don't care if they agree with you or disagree with you. That is not what we're called to do, ever. We are called to love. In fact, I want to just paint this picture. Yeah, it's from this book. You can check me out on it. We hated God. And God loved us in response and sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sins. We're supposed to mirror him. And if we respond to hate with hate, guess what? The gospel's not going forth. You've done nothing but sully the name of Christ. We have to respond even to those who hate us, who oppose us. We need to do so with love. We need to do so with presenting the gospel. We need to share the good news of Jesus with everybody. Second, we need to recognize that the gospel is the only hope for our society, for America, for the whole world. I love our country, so don't take any of those things I say as, you know, disparaging the United States or not wanting our citizenship or, you know, availing ourselves of the rights that we have in this country. I'm not saying any of that. However, we need to recognize that the gospel is the only true hope for America. Again, you could get every elected official you want in office. They could put through every single one of the, the laws that you want and reverse all the laws you don't want. In four years, that's all undone. Ha <laughs> ha, it's all over. What's the only enduring change? If more and more people are transformed by the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the only way. That's our mission. And finally, we need to do more than just recognize that the gospel is our hope. We need to proclaim it. Again, raise your hand if you think you could be effective at sharing the gospel without sharing the gospel. It just doesn't work. So let's do it. <laughs> let's fill this place. Let's fill this place with people who you proclaim the gospel to and they put their faith in Jesus. Let's fill this church with people who you've built a relationship with and they're willing to come and check it out. Let's fill this place with people who are skeptical of Christianity and have a lot of questions and want to hear what we have to say. But let's bring people to Jesus. That's what we got to do. It's the only hope for Belle Glade, the only hope for our country.